Hello, and welcome to Next Reads, a podcast where we read the first chapter of a young adult or middle grade book to help you figure out what to read next. This podcast might contain language or situations some listeners might find offensive or uncomfortable. The North Liberty Library does not necessarily endorse any author's views, but it does support the freedom of speech and freedom to read. Now, on to the show. Hi, my name is Erin, and I'm the Youth and Teen Services Librarian at the North Liberty Library. My pronouns are she and her. Welcome, listeners. Our episode today is The Witch King by H.E. Edgemond. This book has gotten a lot of buzz, and I was pretty excited to get it in the collection. And it is a young adult fantasy novel, and fantasy is not necessarily my go-to genre, but I'm trying to expand my reading horizons. So, I'm going to read the author's note first. In this case, I think it's important for the setup of the book. And there's a quote at the very beginning, and it says, For every trans kid scared to embrace their magic, a new world is waiting. We need you in it. Now here's the note from the author. Dear reader, my debut novel, The Witch King, is not the first book I ever wrote. For years before sitting down with this story, I fretted away at other manuscripts. I'd always known I'd wanted to be a writer. It was obvious from a very young age, tromping through southern swamplands and talking to the creatures my imagination concocted. I only ever half existed in this world. The rest of me was elsewhere, in places of my own creation, and writing allowed me to craft a doorway through which others could join me. The problem was fear. I was terrified. See, the stories I wrote before this were not bad. They were interesting and heartfelt, and each one made me a little better at what I do but they were not honest. I wanted so desperately to share my inner world with other people, but I didn't believe I could show the truth of it. For as far back as I can remember, there have been parts of me I've been made to feel ashamed of. And I truly believed if I put all of those parts onto paper, no one would ever want to read about them. How could I expect you, reader, to embrace the pieces of me I was struggling to come to terms with myself? The Witch King is what happened when I finally confronted that fear head on. Wyatt Croft is the closest thing to a piece of my own heart I've ever written. Into him, I poured so much of myself. All the parts of me I'd been taught to hide, I handed him. His transness, his gayness, his trauma and anger, all of them he inherited from me. And as such, he also inherited my shame. But as I finally allowed myself to deal with these things on paper, Coming to terms with them in the real world became easier and easier. If I could love Wyatt, if I could recognize he was just a boy doing his best to handle impossible situations, if I could accept he was flawed but no less deserving of a happy ending, I could extend myself the same compassion. And in that way, this book became about embracing ourselves for precisely who we are. Wyatt's struggles as a witch mirror many of the struggles queer people, especially trans people, face in the real world. He deals with losing those who are supposed to love him and the guilt of that loss. He's treated like a pariah by a regime that does not want to understand him. And he feels as if his future is not his own, being forced to simply play a role he knows he doesn't actually belong in. Unfortunately, because of this exploration of trauma, I finally allowed myself to write, 
There is content in these pages that has the potential to trigger you. Specifically, I would like to issue warnings for violence, child abuse, childhood sexual harassment and assault, allusions to pedophilia, suicidal ideation, and mentions of suicide, misgendering, drug use, and mentions of infertility and miscarriage. I want you to go into this book prepared for what you may find. But I also want to be clear that this is not a queer pain narrative. It is a story about queer hope because Wyatt is also capable of incredible humor in the face of terror. He's powerful in ways he doesn't even realize yet. He's wanted, and he is so loved. For every person he's lost because of who he is, there is someone who truly loves the most authentic version of him. This, too, mirrors the experiences of our community. We are not defined only by the worst things that happen to us. Writing this book was a healing experience for me, and I'll admit, I'm still a little afraid. It is a vulnerable act to take a piece of my heart and hand it off to a stranger. But I'm also hopeful. I'm hopeful this story will land in the hands of those who need it most. Hopeful Wyatt's journey will resonate with you and maybe offer you a bit of the same healing it gave me. Now, come on, let's step through the doorway together. H.E. Edgemon. So... With that being said, please be aware of the uh, warnings that the author provided in their author's note. Um, I will also say that there is swearing in the first chapter of this book because it is a young adult book. I'm going to give you a little synopsis. In Aslan, Fae rule and witches like Wyatt Croft don't. Wyatt's betrothal to his best friend, Fae Prince Emir North, was supposed to change that. But when Wyatt lost control of his magic one devastating night, he fled to the human world. Now, a coldly distanced Amir has hunted him down. Despite transgender Wyatt's newfound identity and troubling past, Amir has no intention of dissolving their engagement. In fact, he claims they must marry now or risk losing the throne. Jaded, Wyatt strikes a deal with the enemy, hoping to escape Azalin forever. But as he gets to know Amir, Wyatt realizes the boy he once loved may still exist. And as the witches face worsening conditions, he must decide once and for all what's more important, his people or his freedom. Chapter 1. Death. Reversed. I open the back door to let the dogs out, and Nadawa's got her gardening shears buried like a knife in one of my fiancé's wings. Today turning out to be a shit show isn't a huge surprise. Every morning, I pull a card from my tarot deck to get an idea of what the day stretched out in front of me might hold. It's the one piece of magic I let myself dabble in, the one reminder of my old life, besides the scars. This morning, I pulled death, reversed. Resistance to change, refusal to let go, bitterness, transformation. I'd known right then and there something unfortunate was about to go down, but I hadn't expected him. Emir North, Prince of the North American Fae. The first sight of him in years doesn't put me on my ass the way I was worried it might, though the feral animal of my heart threatens to claw its way out of my rib cage. Down, boy. He looks like he did three years ago, but also not. Every part of him is bigger than the lanky, pubescent boy I remember. His body has stretched from boyhood to manhood, Gangly limbs giving way to chiseled muscle and a frame that has to be a foot taller than my own. All the pieces might be bigger than they used to be, but it doesn't matter. 
I would know the pieces of him anywhere. Massive brown wings, thin, veined, and leathery, stretch out on either side of him, tipped with golden claws. His horns have curled into two spirals of soft brown atop his forehead, glinting gold in the light of the afternoon Texas sun. His fangs, long and lethal, peek over his lower lip. The last time I saw him, he was just a boy. Now, he's a monster. The fae are all monsters, but so am I. He's more put together than I remember, too. No more dirt stains on his knees or leaves tangled in his hair from romping around in the woods. His nearly obsidian skin is flawless. The sides of his head shave to expose the dramatic points of his ears, but left long down the center of his skull. He's dressed in a pink suit so dark it could be red, patterned with gold flowers, subtle enough that they almost blend into the pink fabric. A chain is hooked into a septum ring and stretches up to connect to a gold cuff on the tip of his ear, and an assortment of bejeweled rings decorate his long fingers, necklaces dangling around his neck. His lids are painted with black eyeliner and a shimmery golden powder. The softness I remember from our youth has been carved away to reveal the regal warrior underneath. Even with blood spilling from the wound in his wing, he looks like he's the one in control. One thing hasn't changed. The golden glow of his energy sweeps around him like a halo, framing the sharp angles of his face, draping down over his shoulders. A constant emanation of light, like he's some kind of wicked angel. Of course he's beautiful. But he was beautiful the last time I saw him. It doesn't change anything. I still don't want him here. I never wanted him to find me. The dogs rush him, losing their ever-loving minds, barking like they do whenever a rabbit hangs out just past the fence line. He doesn't seem to notice. Some of those mutts are near 100 pounds, and he's got six of them banging up against his legs, but he doesn't sway an inch. Neither do Nautilus fingers around the shears. There are three types of fey magic, feeling, influencing, and healing. Amir is a healer, able to use his magic like medicine on wounds. Not just the kind that come from weapons, either. Healers have been known to transform barren fields to lush gardens. Some of the most powerful of their kind can even raise the dead. I don't know how powerful Amir is these days, but a stab wound wouldn't be much for even the most mediocre of their kind. Still, it's gotta hurt. Amir's dark eyes find my face, and I think, for the splittest of seconds, I see his confidence waver. I am not beautiful. I might have been the last time he saw me, but I'm not now. The person he's been looking for all this time doesn't exist anymore. But whatever look I thought I saw is gone, replaced by a calm, guarded expression. And then he opens his mouth and says a name. It's not my name, though he's clearly addressing me. I don't have it in me to react to my dead name, because the sound of his voice threatens to take a baseball bat to my kneecaps. It's deeper than I remember it, a rolling baritone, crisp on the consonants and honeyed on the vowels. I would like to die. He found me. Three years trying to escape where I came from, finding a new family, finding a new self, pushing my magic away, and blending into the human world until I was practically a ghost. And somehow he still found me. I don't know why I ever thought I could be free of the Fae. I don't know why I let myself get comfortable. Wyatt, Nadwa drawls, voice raspy from 30 years of smoking and barking orders. 
this a friend of yours? I guess there goes any plan I might have concocted about feigning ignorance. That she seems relatively calm despite the presence of a horned creature of unknown origin in her backyard should probably concern me more than it does. She doesn't know anything about what I am. The only one in the world who does is her daughter, my best and only friend, Briar. Nadawa should be freaking out more than this, but in the two years I've known her, I've never actually known Nadwa to freak out about anything. Still, if there were an appropriate time, this would be it. Uh, oh, as it turns out, I can still speak, kinda. Amir asks, Wyatt? I'm not sure if he's looking for clarification on the name or asking me to tell her he is, in fact, my friend, but I can't seem to do either. I open my mouth a couple of times, close it just as many. Finally, I throw my hands up and what comes tumbling out of me is, Briar and Sonny are making a huge mess in the kitchen. Sonny is not his husband, Briar's dad. As I pass the two of them on the way to let the dogs out, they were in the middle of carving up the deer carcass Sonny brought back in the bed of his pickup the night before. Playing with roadkill isn't unheard of in the Begay Brown household, but Sonny and Briar never properly mop up the blood. Nadawa turns her head just enough to meet my stare and hold it, brown gaze splitting me open like the buck knife her husband is using right now on the dead animal inside. She has this way about her, this inexplicable knowing that makes me feel uncomfortably seen. It's been this way since she found me, 15 and alone. Hungry and anxious and hiding in the back of the San Antonio library just before close, hoping not to be discovered and thrown out before morning. She picked me up, draped her cardigan over my shoulders, and clucked her tongue, then took me home to Laredo like a stray collected from the side of the road. I've belonged to this family ever since. Whatever she sees, she must come to some decision. She yanks the shears free from Amir's wing and, with one last withering look, turns her back on him and stalks away. Her energy, deep red like the clay dirt she comes from, lingers near him until it can't any longer, until it snaps back to her spine like a rubber band. She pauses at my side, thick, dark eyebrows tight over a tense expression. I don't know what I expect her to say, but it is Definitely not what she actually says, which is, take him behind the shed before Dolly sees. Dolly, Briar's eight-year-old sister, was inside watching PBS in her grandmother's lap the last time I saw her. But, uh, yeah, no. Nadawa might be uncomfortably calm, but Amir would probably be nightmare fodder for that kid. She doesn't even trust Santa Claus. Sonny had to explain he wasn't real after Dolly spent last season wailing about not wanting some strange old, apparently omnipotent man to break into her house. Silence hangs between us. Emir raises his hand to his still bleeding wound and, with a pulse of golden light, it disappears. The Fae can't actually fly, not anymore anyway, though I've heard they could once, in fairy. So it's not like the injury would have hindered that. Still, it's probably best he doesn't keep bleeding all over the backyard. Not once does he move his gaze from my face. I wish I could read his mind. I've never been particularly good at understanding other people, though there was a time when reading a mirror was as easy as breathing for me. That time is long past. It's a cool day for mid-May in this part of Texas, hovering somewhere in the 80s, but 
The direct sunlight beating down makes it feel hotter. Or else it's the fault of the black hoodie I've got on. Or maybe I'm sweating for an entirely unrelated reason. You couldn't put a glamour on before you showed up, I finally demand, flicking my wrist at him demonstratively. Seriously, Fae travel all the time, in and out of their hidden kingdoms. They usually put the wings away before they do. He frowns, glancing down at himself, as if only just now realizing what he looks like. The glamour wore off, but I was so close to finding you I didn't realize it until it was too late. The idea of him so wrapped up in a desperate attempt to get to me that he couldn't pay attention to anything else definitely does not make me feel anything. Nope, not at all. Amir shrugs one shoulder nonchalant. It doesn't matter. No one but the woman saw me. The guard will send someone to deal with her memories. The guard are the officers in Aslan, the fey kingdom over which Amir's parents rule. <laughs> I think the fuck they won't, I snap back, flashing fang. Keep your pigs away from here. Amir's gaze settles on my mouth. Witches' fangs are smaller than those of the fey. They're usually indiscernible from human canine teeth. But three years ago, in a gas station bathroom in the middle of nowhere Midwest, I took a nail file to mine. I carved them from useless accessories into weapons. I wonder if that's what he's looking at now. The girl you used to love is dead, Amir. A shadow moves in my periphery, in the window of the house, and I remember Nadra's warning to hide. With a quiet growl, I shove my hands into the front pocket of my hoodie and stomp toward the shed. Amir follows at a distance. Most of the dogs have lost interest in him, all except Bella, a pit mix of questionable origin. She trots along, uh, alongside us, fat, brindle body swaying, tongue lolling around in the heat. When we finally settle behind the shed, I turn to face Amir again. Bella sniffs his hand, and he cocks his head at her before turning his fingers over and offering her his upturned talons. Bella gives his palm a considerate lick before dropping down into the shade of the shed and closing her eyes at his feet. Amir looks at me again. We're closer now than we were a moment ago. From this distance, I can actually smell him. Musk and smoke and just a hint of something feminine, floral and sweet like candied rose petals. He smells like Aslan. Or maybe it's not that exactly. Maybe it's that he smells like home. I'm not doing this right now. His golden energy bobs in the air near mine, as if testing the limits. But the blackness that surrounds me, the ever-present darkness that clings to my skin, practically snaps its jaws at him. Amir's energy slinks back around his shoulders, rejected. Everyone has this energy. Fae, witches, humans. The humans can't see it, but even they feel it sometimes. They call it different things than we do, like an aura and everyone's color is different. I used to think Amir was golden like the sun, and my blackness was like the shadow he cast. I still think that's true, but it holds a different meaning now. Wyatt? Amir asks again, quieter this time. He's staring at me with a look I can't quite place. Some hybrid creature bred from concern and confusion and something else, something I've never been able to name, Something that sometimes crosses the faces of the fae when they look at their mates. Mates. It's been a long time since I've considered myself anyone's mate. I used to wear the title with a, a bit of smug pride. 
one of the few rare witches ever to be mated to a fae, and certainly the first ever to belong to their prince. Always under the protection of the throne, unfuckable with. Now I think the term reeks of some weird bioessentialism I want nothing to do with. That look, though. One part concern, one part confusion, one part something that makes my fingers clench. I wonder what he's seeing when he looks at me. I mean, I know what he's seeing, technically. Like, I own a mirror. That growth spurt I kept hoping might hit one day never did. I still barely hit the 5-2 mark. I've put on a little weight since moving off the streets and into this house, because Sunny's cooking and fast food are too good to not eat too much of. I shaved my head last year and have kept it that way since. My black hoodie covers the scars, and any hint at cleavage my binder doesn't properly squash down. So I know what he's seeing, yeah, but I wonder what he makes of it. Wyatt, I repeat, defiance jutting out my chin, practically daring him to say some shit I don't want to hear. Instead, he asks, pronouns? The question takes me so off guard I almost think I must have heard him wrong. It's been a year since I came out to my little surrogate family. They handled it better than I would have expected, but maybe that's because they knew it was coming. I'd spent almost the whole year before that watching way too many YouTube videos from trans guys vlogging their transitions, convincing myself I was just a really supportive ally. By the time I finally admitted to Briar I was trans, she just squeezed my hand and told me she was proud of me in a tone completely lacking any surprise. There are trans people in the fae world, technically. I'd heard of the concept before living around humans, but they aren't nearly as visible, and me being trans never would have been allowed in that world. Because as far as the fae are concerned, I've only ever had one purpose. From the moment Emir met me, when we were just two naive children running aimlessly around Aslan's palace, my only value became what I could do for the throne, namely produce heirs. That's the whole point of the bond, finding the person a fae is most genetically compatible with to beget the most perfect children. At least, that's the story they preach. Growing up, being viewed as nothing but a baby-making factory, I was told to be grateful for that much, because they could have simply done away with me, to hide the shame of the prince being bound to a witch. My being a man probably isn't what the Fae had in mind as a show of gratitude. He, him, I answer anyway, leveling Amir with a skeptical look. At his sides, his fists clench and unclench. The clawed tips of his wings flex, dipping down over his shoulders. After a moment, he asks, and these people, who are they? They're my family. I don't hesitate to supply the answer. It's the truth though a pang of guilt does resonate deep in my gut, because all I've ever wanted was to keep them safe, especially Briar. And now what have I done? I've brought an inhuman danger right into their doorstep. Or maybe there's another reason for the guilt. They aren't the first family I've ever had, and I know what happened to the first one because of me. I bite at the inside of my cheek until I taste blood. When the flash of iron hits my tongue, I spit a stream of red onto the ground at my feet. What do they know of our kind? Nothing. A lie, at least in part. Briar knows everything. I think he knows I'm lying. Sensing emotions, reading minds, that kind of power lies within the feelers. And Amir isn't one of them. 
but he stares at me for a long moment before huffing, nostrils flaring with agitation. He curls his fingers around his hips and shrugs his broad shoulders. Fine. It doesn't matter. You are leaving here tonight. Like hell I am, I snap back. The guard will have me killed. You know that. You will face the consequences of what you've done, Amir agrees, and that doesn't instill any hope in me. But I will not allow them to sentence you to death. I cannot imagine you ever intended to hurt anyone. What if I told you I did? The question escapes me before I can stop it. I swallow back a lump in my throat, burning eyes meeting Amir's. What if I told you I meant everything I did that night? Again, the briefest look crosses his face before it's gone, his expression schooled into a mask of control. This time, beneath the surface, I see his horror. It doesn't matter, he finally says. I need you. We will keep your magic under control if need be. A chill creeps up the back of my neck. What would that look like? Being kept under control by the Fae. I know you got a shitty deal here, being stuck with me and all, but you're barking up the wrong tree. It'd be better for both of us if you pretended you never found me. How did he find me anyway? Unfortunately, Emir drawls, our biology has decreed you're the only tree I have to bark up. Biology. I can feel a heat start to sizzle inside my veins, pumping through my bloodstream, threatening to spread to the palms of my hands. I squash it down the way I always do. Anyway, that's not entirely true. Bonded fae are compelled to be with their mates, or so I'm told, but they aren't forced. He could have anyone of his choosing, biological matchmaking be damned. All this time, I'd hoped that was exactly what he'd do. Hoping for anything has never done me any good. The throne needs us, both of us. It can't wait any longer. Unfortunately, I retort, words sharp as my tongue flicks against my teeth, my biology has decreed that the throne can kiss my ass. Amir glares at me. His wings twitch again, and this time the sharp tips of his horns tighten as I watch with morbid fascination. You have somehow become even worse with people than I remember you being. Do you know that? I raise my brows in a you-don't-say kind of way, but don't bother with a retort. The backyard falls silent again, except for Bella's snoring and the far-off sounds of the other dogs romping through the dirt. Amir's fangs worry his lower lip. His hands twist in front of him, long claws scraping the backs of his palms. After a moment, he reaches up to tug at one of the earrings dangling by his throat. I consider asking him if my good looks have rendered him speechless, but instead, I just keep watching him. Finally, he asks, do you remember my cousin Derek? Derek. Unbidden, my stomach lurches. The back of my neck heats. Of course I remember Derek Pierce. My truly good memories of Aslan are spotty. Most of them are vague flashes of woods and smoke and Amir's fingers twisted in mine. Childhood games of make-believe, stumbling over magic like shoes too big for my feet, and my heart lit up in a way it's since gone dark. It was only as I got older and less naive that things started getting bad. I began seeing the Fae for what they were and doubting the life that was planned for me. Amir and I started fighting. 
the childhood friendship and blooming something between us warping as I began to question my place in his future. As I started to realize he saw me the way all the Fae saw me, not for who I was, but for what he could do with me. The bad memories are the ones sitting at the forefront of my mind when I think of Aslan. But it would take a lot more than that to make me forget about Derek. My childhood infatuation with him was inappropriate for about a dozen reasons, starting with him being a good decade older than me and ending with the fact that I was betrothed to his cousin. Still, I'm pretty sure the first time I saw him shirtless in the lake, something in me woke up. Vaguely, I tell Amir. He's become the head of the guard. He's assumed a certain amount of power and influence for himself. And now he's decided to make a bid for the throne. I blink. His tone is ominous, as if he believes he just dropped some very worrying news on me. But I don't actually care. All right. Amir visibly balks, eyes widening as if he was expecting a very different answer. Then he grumbles, shaking his head. No, not all right. Not all right at all. He wants to displace me and take the kingdom for himself. He's called my legitimacy as heir into question. I raise one eyebrow. Because you're adopted? The whole thing is scandalous and always has been in Fae circles. Kadri and Leonidas, Amir's parents, are fated mates. Yet somehow, despite all claims that biology and perfect reproduction are what make a fated pair destined for one another, Kadri was never able to produce an heir for the royal line. Infertility among the Fae isn't unheard of, but just like transness and a witch mate, it's rare. Hearing about Derek's bid isn't what I expected, but it also doesn't surprise me that Amir's claim is being called into question. Amir nods. There's never been, as far back as we've studied, a situation like mine. Thrones are always passed down through the bloodline. He believes we're abandoning our ways, and he isn't the only one who thinks this way. He's got a whole gang of followers supporting him. There are protests, petitions being presented to the court on his behalf. We're on the verge of civil war because of him. His tone roughens as Amir whispers, I barely know who I can trust anymore. Huh, that sucks. His palm connects with his face, claws scraping from his forehead and down his cheek, and he groans. You are insufferable. I've been told. I imagine being married to me would really suck. Actually, Amir lowers his hand, shaking his head. I disagree. Derek's lackeys have convinced the population you are gone from Aslan forever. He warns of a future in which I rule alone, where the royal line ends with me regardless. And, I ask, and I intend to prove him wrong. Amir throws his hands up, exasperated. I need you with me to present a united front to the dissenters. With you at my side, I'll be able to quell the nerves of some who are uncertain about the throne's future. I don't think a wanted criminal is the ruler your people are looking for. Emir considers that, eyeing me before he shrugs. I promised I would protect you, didn't I? Besides, everyone loves an underdog. They'll see someone who came from nothing and rose to sit at the side of the king. It'll be inspirational. You want me as your show dog? And therein lies the problem. I've never been a whole person to the people trying to shape my future. 
I've always been a chess piece, a move to play to get where they intend to go. Somehow, it stings a little extra coming from him. Maybe some naive part of me, a secret, hidden part I would never admit to out loud, hoped he would understand. Hoped that when Amir realized how desperately I didn't want to marry him, he would let me go. I loved him once. And he loved me too, in his own way. Apparently neither matters anymore. No, I want you as my husband. He raises his eyebrows. Some would say we have quite the love story. Husband? The word yanks at my insides. I'm going to throw up. We do not have any kind of love story, I counter. But Amir doesn't seem to hear me. He's begun pacing, rubbing his fingers along one of his pendants. And once we are expecting our first child, <laughs> our first what exactly? Child. Amir pauses long enough to narrow his eyes at me before he starts pacing again. We'll need to secure heirs for the throne. Once we do that, Derek's bid for king will crumble. The only thing people love more than underdogs and love stories are royal babies. This is why my resentment towards this engagement started growing in the first place. I'm expected to trade my life, my freedom, my personhood for some political game I don't care anything about. I'm supposed to smile and wave and perch some sticky crying child on my hip so Amir can keep his precious throne. The idea makes me want to screech or set something on fire or both maybe. I'm 17 years old. I just want to live for a while. Even in some alternate universe where I'm in love with Amir, where I want to marry him, I'm not ready for a kid. He's out of his mind. I suddenly hope Derek Pierce gets everything he wants. And how do you suppose we'll go about doing that, securing these heirs? He rolls his eyes. Rolls his fucking eyes. I want to rip them out of their sockets. Couples like us have children every day, I presume. We will figure it out. We are not a couple. He crosses his arms. We're engaged to be married. What would you consider us? I don't have an answer for that. What about your parents? They're still king and queen, aren't they? Shouldn't this be their problem? The corners of his mouth tug down. Again, an unsettled expression whispers across his face. Mother and father need their rest. They should have stepped down already, but with Derek and his supporters making their intentions clear, they're worried what might happen if they do. His jaw tightens, his frown disappearing into a scowl. This is why we have to get married now. Once we've established ourselves, they can retire and we can ascend to the throne. He shrugs. Besides, this is what we agreed on. You're 17 now. By the laws of fairy, you're an adult. It is time for us to make good on our oath. We don't live in fairy. No one has lived in fairy since our ancestors crawled through the door to earth in the 1500s. And we didn't agree to anything, I snap back. These plans were made for us. Amir gives a small shake of his head, that stoic resignation returning to his features. Be that as it may, they were made just the same. Something heavy and unspoken settles over us as we stare at one another. I don't have anything to combat what he's saying, not really. I need him to understand why this is as messed up as it is, but I think it might be a lost cause. He's convinced himself he needs me to keep the kingdom from going to war. What am I supposed to say that could persuade him otherwise? Please don't make me marry you. I don't want to be king of the Fae. All I ever meant 
was to be nothing. Why can't you just let me be nothing? Finally, after we've stared at one another long enough for the sun to move infinitesimally into the sky, a mere size, there's a flight leaving Laredo Airport tomorrow at four in the afternoon for Rochester. I expect you to meet me there no later than two. Please. The word feels acidic on my tongue. I hate begging like some kind of kicked dog, but I don't know what else to do here. If you want to convince me this could actually work between us, I'm going to need a little time. I can't just get on a plane tomorrow. Stay here. Let's talk about this some more. I watch with a sort of guilty fascination as the sharp point of one fang presses into Amir's plush lip. Finally, he shakes his head. Time is not something we have. So much for begging. I could run again, and I would find you again. His wings flutter behind him. Do you want to be a fugitive for the rest of your life? Does he expect me to believe he cares what I want? Fuck you, I say, because I don't know what else I can offer. What happens next happens very quickly. So quickly, I don't have time to process until it's over. So quickly, I couldn't have stopped it even if I wanted to. Amir reaches for me. His fingers curl around my wrist, and his thumb claw presses gently into my skin. Not tight, not enough to hurt, but that doesn't matter. I don't like to be touched. I really don't like to be touched by the Fae. My magic, dusty from years of disuse, surges. Blackness, that same inky blackness that bobs around my body, slicks up my hands. Flames rise, unbidden, the tips of all ten of my fingers flicking to life like ten freshly struck matches. My free hand shoots out to shove at his chest, hard, and Amir reels back, releasing me from his grip, his eyes shooting wide. His own magic responds to the threat, gold painting across his hands and up to his elbows, his eyes glowing that same gold, horns twisting tighter on the top of his head. But there's no threat, not anymore. As quickly as it started, it disappears. The flames go out, leaving only smoke. My hands return to white. In the aftermath, I can hardly think through the rush of adrenaline, through the sound of my own too frantic heartbeat. Amir's silk shirt is singed to hell and back. He's staring at me like he's afraid. He should be, I think. He should be afraid of me. I'm a little afraid of me. I never wanted to feel the fire again. Amir's body, too, returns to normal. He's still looking at me like he isn't sure what to do with me. I want to take pride in that. I want to make him afraid. But I can't make myself feel anything but ugly. I will see you tomorrow, fire starter, is all he says before he slips away. And that is the end of the chapter, which was kind of long, but I feel like it sets up the story really well. So now we have to know if Wyatt is going to get on that airplane, if he's going to join Amir and go back to Aslan and maybe become king and king. It all sounds very fascinating to me. So I hope you enjoyed that first chapter of The Witch King by H.E. Edgemon. You can check it out at our library. You can also find it on Digital Johnson County. And if you have any questions about how to access 
those services on Digital Johnson County or if you need to get a library card, feel free to stop in at the library and we're happy to set you up. So thanks everyone for listening and we will hear from you next time. Thanks.